Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Faith That Works, with a message entitled, Faith and Works. So turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading James chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you've been following this series in the book of James, you'll have noticed how skillfully James combines the concept of believing with a concept of doing. We believe that God is perfectly in control of all things, and because of that, we do persevere and not give up when things get tough. We believe that in our conversion, God has planted His Word into our hearts, and therefore, we do study the Word and make application into our lives. We believe that Christ laid aside His splendor and became a man. He became poor for our sakes, and for that reason, we can't prefer the rich over the poor. You see, every single doctrine that we hold has its practical application into our lives. The last doctrine James has dealt with has to do with the understanding of God's law and its authority over the lives of God's people. If we break one law, we have become guilty of being lawbreakers. We're in violation to the whole law of God, for we are rebels to the king who gave his law as an expression of himself. The application? Well, simple. Since the purpose of the law was to teach us to love, If we should neglect the poor, we prove we're lawbreakers and thus neither love our neighbor nor do we love God. You know, we believe in God's law and we do by loving our neighbor with special emphasis on the poor. You know, and then after that, James calls the law a law of liberty. And that may be surprising because for so many of us, the law is that thing that condemns us when we disobey. It highlights what constitutes our unloving attitudes and exposes them for what they are. But here we are in verse 12, in which James says two words in one sentence that most of us think shouldn't really be in the same sentence. Notice, would you, he speaks of being judged under the law, and then the very law that judges us is also called the law of liberty. But please remember that in our study of James, that this is not the first time in which he has referred to the law in that way. Look back, if you will, to James chapter 1, verse 25. There we read, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, he says. And then in James chapter 2, he calls the law the royal law, which really is equivalent to calling it the perfect law. And then as before, he calls the law a law of liberty, a law that sets us free. Again, that seems surprising. Grace is liberating. Law is a demand, and the breaking of the law is bondage. Grace frees us from the righteous condemnation of the law. You know, since all have sinned, all have been shown to have broken God's law. We are in bondage, and grace frees us from the curse of the law. 
Well, that's true, but it's not the whole truth. You know, the purpose of the law was not to enslave us, but to prevent us from being enslaved. It was a fence built up to prevent our imprisonment. Let me give an illustration. I remember years ago counseling a young woman. She, she had genital herpes, got it from her boyfriend. He told her he loved her and asked her if she really loved him. He told her that sex was a part of love, and even though he told her about his own genital herpes, he promised her. He knew when he wasn't in danger of being infectious. Promises, promises, along with a great deal of pressure for her to come through for him. Now he was long gone, but the disease that he had brought in her life, it remained. She wept and she told me that from now on, she was damaged goods. She was in bondage. Law for her would have been liberating. There she would have learned that bringing one's virginity into your marriage is highly valued by God. And furthermore, the Old Testament is very clear about the ordering of relationships. Listen carefully to Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is, after leaving father and mother, the man enters into a covenant with his wife, and then, following that, they become one flesh. That is, they consummate their lifelong commitment in the marriage bed. You know, furthermore, in Exodus 22, verse 16, it says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give her the bride price for her and make her his wife. And translation, You violated God's law in your act of premarital sex, and now you're obligated to make that virgin your wife. Now, back to the account of the young woman with genital herpes. You know, I thought how liberating it would have been for her if someone had been there and read the law to her and to be there in the beginning to tell her, listen, sweetheart, that's not love. Love says don't ever become sexually involved outside of marriage. He doesn't love you. He only loves himself. So don't you see how liberating the law is? It is the law of freedom. Or here's another example. A poor man in ragged clothing comes into our worship and you say, we have some very important people here and if we give the poor a place of prominence, you know, important rich people might think that, well, they're a bunch of losers. They allow people from the street in here and well, if you allow for that, we might not reach that influential leader of our culture. But then comes the law, the royal law of love, and it says, you shall not show partiality. And what are we left with? Answer, liberty. No longer do we need to impress anyone, only God. You stop asking how you can impress a certain class of clientele. Instead, you are free to live in the light of grace, and it's extended freely to all. So then what does the law intend? Well, it intends to teach us how to love. And it teaches us how to be free. It's a hedge that keeps us from bondage. But as we have seen, the law also teaches us the difference between true and false faith. It will show us whether our faith is genuine or not. It asks us whether we actually believe that God's judgments, God's perspectives, God's righteousness is all that counts. You know, in the law, God is saying, will you learn to love from me? And will you live that way? God uses the law as a mirror that teaches us to examine ourselves, to see whether our faith is true or false. You know, interestingly enough, Paul teaches the same thing. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves? 
that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Okay, as we've seen that the law, when understood in terms of what it provides, is in fact a law of liberty. The law doesn't save us, but the law defines where liberty is to be found. Now to verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, many Bible teachers wonder why James wrote this sentence. But consider the context. James is writing to ushers who put poor people into the worst seats in the house of worship. And he's been telling us that the royal law is a law of love. And love is about mercy. But if you show no mercy, the law itself will render judgment that is without mercy. To ignore God's commands is to put ourselves in a place of condemnation. Consider what we have in the gospel. Did the law condemn us? Yes, it did. The law has shown us that we don't love God and that we don't love our neighbors. The law has highlighted and laid bare our hatred, both of God and of neighbor. But what the law failed to do, God did by sending his own son. He redeemed us. He bought our freedom from condemnation by taking our condemnation on himself. That, that was love. And so it is with us. I can imagine that poor man showing up at the same time as the rich man. I can imagine the usher putting the two men side by side. You know, perhaps the rich man feels embarrassed. Maybe he thinks this is all wrong and leaves because he is offended. So if you're going to keep the rich man, you might be tempted to put the poor man out of sight. But that's not genuine faith. And that's not genuine love. And it's certainly not a reflection of the mercy we have received in the gospel. And in the end, this is what the law intended. It condemned us so that we might seek mercy, a mercy that is found in Christ alone. But since the law showed us the need for mercy, does it not follow that there is a natural application that we become people of mercy? See, that's what James is teaching us. Doctrine and doing, love and faith, hearing and acting, having received mercy and becoming agents of mercy. Grace and commands, obedience and faith, all of these belong together. They cannot exist alone. Genuine faith loves genuinely. Back to the Bible Canada has wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022 with a success like never before. Which is why we had no hesitation with jumping right into planning our Israel Experience 2023. The dates will be April 16th to the 24th with an optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. This trip is an opportunity to see and experience so many of the critical biblical sites you're so familiar with in the Bible. Like one guest said, we've been in ministry for nearly 40 years, read our Bibles through nearly every year, but this took it from 2D to 3D. If you'd like to take your walk with Christ to the next level, be sure to register as soon as possible. Spots fill up fast. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 to reserve your spot or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's look again at verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we've all heard the stories. We all know of someone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't live like one. Is that a problem? You know, some time ago, Pastor Mark Dever, senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in in Washington, D.C., was addressing about 8,000 pastors. He said that he believes there are millions of people in North American churches that are not truly converted. He said that false conversions obscure the gospel and are the suicide of the church. Furthermore, he made this startling statement. He said the problem isn't just the occasional hypocrite lost in unrepentant sin but systems that seems to produce false converts, not just one man, but whole congregations. I wonder, is he right? Are there systems in place where the gospel has been improperly preached that led to false conversions? You know, some say yes, but others vehemently disagree. For instance, a very prominent theologian of the last century taught, and I quote, the New Testament does not impose repentance upon the unsaved as a condition of salvation. He clarified himself later by saying, and I quote again, we do need a change of mind, but that doesn't include sorrow for sin or turning from sin. (laughs) Now, to be clear, this theologian was all in favor of turning from sin. He just said that even if you never did, you'd still be saved if you fully trusted in Jesus. Well, that's the opposite point of view. Now, is he right? But all of these are just theological disagreements. See, where it gets real dicey is when we soberly ask ourselves, is it possible to be deceived as to whether or not I'm truly a Christian? Well, one thing is clear. Jesus did think it was possible. Listen to what he said in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus has people in mind who do many things in his name, public things, but who on a personal level never did his will. They did not obey him and they aren't saved. That's what he said. So let's frame this thing. I can't imagine a question any more crucial than this question. Is faith without works a dead faith, stillborn thing, something that has never come to life? Because this is the question of heaven or hell, eternal joy or eternal torment. Now you should say to yourself, even if I get everything else wrong, I had better not get this one wrong. Millions of years from now, this question is going to matter. And at the heart of this question stands this one of the most controversial passages in our entire Bible, James 2, 14 to 26. We're we're going to finish the passage tomorrow, but this is the question we must answer. You know, James begins by asking a crucial question in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So we have to agree this is the most crucial question. But before we seek to answer this question, let's be sure that we understand the question. You know, first, James, we might say, might I ask you what you mean by works? So let's let James answer the question. 
In many ways, James does answer this question throughout his book. In chapter 1, verse 3, he mentions steadfastness or endurance. In chapter 1, verse 12, he mentions it again, steadfastness under trial. And then in 1.21, he mentions purity of life, putting away moral filth. In chapter 1.22 to verse 23, he mentions obedience to Scripture. In 1.27, he mentions compassion for the needy. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, he mentions impartial treatment of people that is required of us. Then in the rest of the book, he mentions control of the tongue, humility, truthfulness, patience. Well, what are those things? Well, these things are basic Christian virtues. These things reflect that we're living according to the royal law of Jesus, the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament law taught. So James is asking if someone says he has faith but lacks in basic Christian virtues, can that faith save him? And that's the most important question any human being can ask. Now, I say this because many people have been confused about what James is asking. And the reason for the confusion is because of of the writings of Paul, I think. You know, for instance, Romans 8.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So let me put it plainly. When Paul says works, as in works of the law, he means something very different than what James means. For Paul, works equals merit-based righteousness. Let me explain that. See, Paul is arguing that there are those who use the law as a way of measuring how they're doing for God. That is, they think the law is doing things for God, which they think earns them goodness bucks. And in the end, this is what they think, after they've done enough goodness bucks, they earn merits or they earn salvation or they earn their way into heaven. They think that God is now obligated to pay up. That's why some people become angry with God. They suffer and then they say, I mean, after all I've done for God, this is how he repays me. Look at it this way. You go to work, and in the end of the work period, your employer shows up and he gives you a check. You don't say, for me, well, you shouldn't have. What an unexpected and gracious gift. No one says that. Rather, your paycheck is not a gift. It's a merit. You earned it, and the paycheck is an obligation of the employer. That's what Paul addresses in his writings. Paul says, that's not how it goes down between God and us. We don't earn salvation by keeping the law. Nothing we do merits it. It's a free gift given to unworthy people who haven't worked for this. It's all grace. It's not works. So for Paul, when he says works, he means merit-based righteousness. And so when Paul opposes works, he opposes a system called merit-based righteousness or working for our salvation. But for James, he never uses the word works in that fashion. Remember, when Paul used the word, he means works equals merit-based righteousness. But James uses the word differently. In James, works equals basic Christian virtues. You see, the two men are using the same word, but they mean something very different by using it. Paul is opposing works righteousness, and James is opposing easy believism. So imagine walking a high, narrow path with two steep cliffs falling down on either side. Fall down either one and you die. See, Paul's warning you about the cliff on one side, and James is warning you about the cliff on the other side. 
Uh, One cliff is called works righteousness, and some people, fearing this cliff, run away from it, only to fall down the cliff on the other side. Imagine James and Paul, both appointed by God, one stands on one side and says, don't you dare stray here. Don't you dare fall into works righteousness. And the other stands on the other side and says, don't stray here either. Don't fall into an intellectual faith that's devoid of obedience. See, Pastor Mark Dever was right. Many in churches have a faulty system in which they're telling lawless Christians that they're all right, that they're saved. That brings us back to the real purpose of the law. The law never saved anyone, but it really was a law of liberty. Once you are brought to Christ, we begin to say with with Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law, for you've taught me how to live and how to act and how to put my faith into action. See, the believer in Jesus never thinks that the law is our means to earn salvation. Rather, the law is given to teach us how to love. Without the law, I would never have known that my neighbor is my brother. I would simply have followed the culture and allowed the world to shape my behavior. But now that Christ has found me and made me his own, I find myself delighting in the law of freedom. I find that works, or should I say, obedience to God's command set me free, and they are the natural outworking of my faith. John, as we look at your message today, I have to ask a question. Uh, Is there any degree of obedience that we have to abide by in order to be saved? Such a great question, and the answer is very simple. We are saved through the blood of Christ alone, who worked on our behalf, has nothing to do with our work. So we need to say and re-say that over and over again. However, we also want to say that once we come to believe, a change is affected in our hearts, and that change actually is seen externally. Uh, The way in which we act begins to look differently. So we can look at our own lives and say, is there any change in my life? That would be an indication that a change has happened on the inside. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for our continuation of the series, Faith That Works, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. In Jesus' parable of the sower, it's the soil that enhances the harvest. Hardened ground must be broken up. Earth riddled with stones or weeds has to be sifted. When the soil is prepared, the seed bursts into life. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the sowing of God's Word. And you can stand with us in this commitment. Your regular financial gifts make this broadcast possible. Your kindness propels the Word of God across Canada. Your prayers help prepare the soil, and your donations help plant the truth. This month, because of the generosity of a group of dedicated listeners, we've been privileged to extend our match campaign with an additional $75,000. So, double your impact, dollar for dollar, during the month of July. To do so, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.